I do want to highlight one thing coming up this week. Um, I'm very excited about the men's ministry. Uh, men's fraternity is what the uh, technical term is for it. And uh, we are starting that Friday, 6 a.m. at Allen Park Community Center. And I hope that, guys, you make that a priority. I know it's early. I have class right after that at 7.30. So I have a, a nice long Friday. I'll have to get to bed early on Thursday. You might have to as well. I did not realize that um, Community Baptist started 10 years ago uh, this last week. I was reflecting as we were sitting, uh, as the pastor was talking about that, reflecting that 10 years ago I was a, a skinny 17-year-old nerdy freshman in college. And now this month I'll turn 28. I'm not so, ner- not so skinny, still nerdy, but we have really, really enjoyed our time at Community Baptist. And I'm, I'm, as always, privileged to be able to get up here and to speak with you and to help collectively shape our thinking more into the, uh, into the mind of Christ. And uh, this week and next week, we're going to talk about disinfecting. Disinfecting. Um, it's not really something that's pleasant. Um, it, can, it can be a lot of hard work. I think particularly of like spring cleaning. You have to get down on your hands and knees and do battle royale with the filth in your house. And, and if you're like me, I mean, I can do a little bit of cleaning. I can wash dishes. I can pick up a room. But when my wife says something like, we really need to clean out the garage, I just I shudder. It's like, oh, that's not going to be a 20-minute task, is it? And uh, actually, it took us uh, the better part of, uh, uh, I think, at least a year <laughs> in pieces here and there, but we finally got it mostly done. The goal is to pull in at least one car and, uh, before the winter. But, you know, when you're doing it in your house especially, I, the most filth I had to worry about was just sweeping the floor and cleaning out the dead mice in the garage, which wasn't fun. But inside a house, you know when you go and say, I'm going to do some heavy-duty cleaning, I mean, you find all kinds of unpleasant things you know, all you have to do is get down underneath and see like the, around the bottom of the toilet and like, oh, wow, that hasn't been scrubbed in forever. It's rust and I don't know what else. I'm afraid to know. You know, you, underneath your sink, in your crawl space, I don't even like to go down there. But, you know, th- there's, there's places in your house when you're doing a heavy-duty cleaning or maybe in your car, maybe it's even worse, you know, food from months ago. But... When you settle down and say, I am really going to do some cleaning. I'm going to disinfect. I want to clean this area out so that the germs have no place to go. It's a lot of work. And sometimes it's even a little bit embarrassing to realize, wow, I, I thought my house was clean. But when I really took a good look and got down on my hands and knees, I realized it wasn't that clean. Friends, I think that we need to do a little disinfecting of our brains. And it's only a a two-week mini-mini-series, but I do want to focus on two areas of our thinking that I do believe that Satan has successfully contaminated. I think that we have, as Pastor said, instead of consciously taking our values from God's Word, I think we have unconsciously taken them from the world. And we'll see why that was so easy to do. But I want us to take a good look at our hearts 
at the patterns of thought that go on and make sure that it conforms to what God says is acceptable for us. It may be a little bit messy, it may be a little bit sobering, but we need it, friends. We need to be sober-minded. We need to think and look at things clearly. Today we're going to look at one very common pattern of thought that the culture around us hails as normal. How do we feel when we mess up? What thoughts go through our minds when we're caught in a sin? Why is it that people flush, stammer, talk faster when you're confronted about a mistake? I'm not talking about the wrong that others have done to you, although there's usually plenty of blame on both sides. What I'm talking about is, for example, when you hurt someone with mean-spirited words, when you forget to complete an important task, when you rush to judge someone and you turn to be flat-out wrong, the big question is, what should be your response when you are the one to blame? This morning, we're going to spend a little time in Psalms and Proverbs later on after we take a good look at what the culture says about our attitude towards our own wrongdoing. If anyone needs a Bible, uh, Psalms and Proverbs will be in those two. Larry has a couple Bibles, so just raise your hand and he can get one to you. What should be your response when you are the one who is to blame? How should you feel about that? In attempting to answer this problem of guilt, the culture has developed two streams of thought that we frequently see evidence of. And when combined, these separate streams make a really potent philosophy of wrongdoing. The doctrine according to the devil, if you will. And I say that because as we will see, this philosophy stands in pretty stark contrast to what God says we're supposed to think about our guilt or think about, feel when we are in the wrong. Particularly this morning, we have to get down on our hands and knees, like I said, look into our own, our, our own hearts and say, ask, do I respond to my own wrongdoing in a biblical way or are my thoughts and reactions copied directly over from the world's experts? There's a lot of them who claim to have the knowledge claim to know how you ought to feel. But we need to beware of these types of philosophy. And so there's two components, and we'll look at each one separately, and then we'll see what God's Word says about them. The first one is the elimination of guilt. The culture really pushes the elimination of guilt. It's supposedly unhealthy for your psyche. Supposedly, Guilt is only a, a, con, a conditioned response that you've learned from overly strict sensibilities, whether your own or perhaps your parents or the school that you went to or society in general. But guilt is something that you learned and that it's just other people trying to tell you what to do, trying to make you feel bad. So the world often says things like that it serves no useful purpose or it holds people back from achieving their true potential. We hear this from self-help gurus all the time, don't we? Things like, well, you can't beat yourself up all the time over the past. You need to forgive yourself. Let go. Move on. That philosophy is all over TV, radio, movies, 
books, even the housekeeping magazine that you might buy. You're encouraged to accept yourself no matter what ugly things are in your past. You're never supposed to judge anyone or conclude that they, or you, are a bad person. Guilt is supposedly harmful because it brings negative thoughts. Now, I could spend a whole other lesson on this. But let me just say that I really do feel like, and I see constantly, that the culture celebrates a sort of false positivism. Loving life, LOL. <laughs> Everything has to be positive. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm just, I'm chugging along. I'm doing fine. Nobody can get me down. Is that really the way that we're supposed to think? Is that real? Regardless of your opinion on the Casey Anthony verdict, it seemed very callous, very fake, that just two weeks after the death of her daughter, she got a tattoo on her shoulder that said, Bella Vita, beautiful life. Really? Is that the normal response of a grieving mother? But regardless of whether she had a hand in her daughter's death or not, it seemed callous to us. But that's normal for the culture. Move on. You've got to be positive. I'm not going to let anything get me down, especially not bad feelings for something I said or did. It's connected to this attitude of eliminating guilt. Let me give you an example. Something that you might be able to see in your life or in the life of people around you. Let's say you're at work and your spouse calls you and says, Honey, I'm sorry, but I didn't get this done. Or I thought you meant this. And I, I, there was confusion there. And you just lay into them over the phone. You have had it. This is not the first time this week. And you are so frustrated that they cannot take simple instructions and get something simple done. And you just let them have it. I can't believe this. I can't, you are causing me so much frustration. I don't even know if I want to come home right now. Well, then later on, couple hours later, you feel guilty. <sighs> I shouldn't have laid into them so hard. Yeah, they've had a tough week too. Man, why do I fly off the handle like that? I, I know I shouldn't do that. But your unsaved coworker who sits next to you says, don't you feel bad about that? You know what? They had it coming. You know, you shouldn't feel bad. You know, you were just letting off some steam. You were just venting, you know, and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Don't feel guilty about that. That's just how you felt at that particular time. They want to eliminate guilt for you. It's nice they're doing it for you. But that's the thing is, we don't just eliminate guilt for ourselves. We want to eliminate guilt all around us because we don't want you to feel bad. I don't want me to feel bad. So let's all none of us feel bad. The message ultimately is that we might make mistakes, but our emotional well-being somehow demands that we minimize those mistakes because those bad feelings are harmful to us. The culture often implies that guilt is just something that I think they think that old, just old Presbyterians invented to kind of repress free spirits. It's certainly gone out of style to cringe in remorse at the sin that I just committed, well, that's not healthy. Why isn't it healthy? Because they don't want those guilty feelings. And I'm having just as much problem with this as Pastor was. 
Now, I want to be careful, and I need to qualify this. Not all guilt is the same. And as we're actually going to see, guilt breaks down into two categories, and then one of those breaks down into two further categories. So not all guilt is the same. And sometimes we may hold on to long-term guilt over some things that were already resolved. Thus for decades. Because we think we messed up. It can't ever be right. I, I, I just, I always wreck things in my life. I'm, I can never do anything good. Now that type of paralyzing guilt is harmful for us. It does keep us from moving forward. And I would say even further that that's a sin to hold on to evil that has already been repented of and taken care of, whether your own sin or whether it's someone else's sin that you can't let go of. We usually call that bitterness. But that long-term destructive guilt that I'll talk about a little bit later, I fully agree with the culture that that is unhealthy to hold on to. But the fact is that that's not the only type of guilt that they want to get rid of. They really would just like to get rid of all guilt. They want to get rid of guilt as a feeling of remorse for my personal sin. Paul spoke in 1 Timothy 4.2 of those whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Guilt is a function of the conscience. And when people don't want to feel the twinge, the heart twinge of a conscience, when they don't want to feel guilt, they try to eliminate it. They try to minimize it. If that is disabled, then there's one less stumbling block in the way of them doing whatever they want to do, free of all restraint. So the elimination of guilt is something that I think you don't have to look very hard, just like I don't have to look very hard, to see all around us. The culture does not want to feel bad about old values, about old traditions, about old uh, ideas of sin and what's wrong. They don't want to be bound up in that, and they don't want you to be bound up in that either. So not only is the elimination of guilt one of the two veins that flow into this culture of wrongdoing, but also the priority of genuine emotion. And you say, well, that doesn't sound bad. I think that's especially why it's so dangerous, because it doesn't sound bad. Let me see if I can define it a little bit for you. This is the part of the world's philosophy that encourages people just to go with their gut. Just go, just let your heart lead you. One song says, listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. An impulse or emotional reaction is supposedly good for you to follow. And even if it leads you into a mistake, I mean, the world wouldn't call it sin, of course, but even if it leads you into a mistake, that, that heart impulse, that's just, that's acceptable because you have to be true to yourself, most of all. You have to, you have to be you. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't be you. And if being you leads into some horrific mistakes, well, you know what? That's just part of life. Live and learn. LOL. <laughs> Examples of this. Well, we all sometimes just have to vent. Well, it was just the booze talking. I have to do this for me. Don't you understand? I, this is for me. I'm sorry if you don't like it. I'm sorry if maybe it, it's not entirely great, but I just have to do this. Sorry. 
Of course, they're not really sorry. One Broadway musical aimed at kids is called Into the Woods. Here are some of the lyrics of it. It's actually beautiful music. People make mistakes, fight for their mistakes, honor their mistakes. Witches can be right, giants can be good. You decide what's right. You decide what's good. Near the end of that musical comes through, that is Stephen Sondheim's message in that particular musical. You decide what's right. You decide what's good. Sends chills through my spine when I listen to it. The danger in this view, friends, is that the culture wants to lift up your thoughts to the level of, I would say, almost infallibility. How can your actions be viewed as sinful if the greater sin would have been not to act that way, the way your impulse has told you at that particular moment? Is that really the, the biggest wrong you can do, is not to be true to yourself? Not to go with your gut? And isn't that what the world has done, really? It's exalted self above everything and everyone else. No one can tell you what's right or wrong. You just have to figure it out for yourself. And if you're inconsistent or arbitrary or people get hurt along the way, well, that's okay because we're all just humans trying to put the pieces together. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. So just let me do my thing and don't get in my way. Again, I do want to point out that there is a very small kernel of truth in this. Going through the right motions with no heart in it is not the answer. God frequently corrected his people Israel for this in the Old Testament. He said, yes, you're offering sacrifices, but your heart is far from me. You're worshiping idols in your heart, even if you don't have them set up in your house visibly. We are supposed to love God with our whole entire person, including our emotions. But friends, it is utterly false to say that good intentions excuse wrong behavior. Utterly false. You might have seen this if you've tried correcting someone for something. Let me give you an example again. What if, what if your neighbor cut down your tree on your property or just scalped it maybe at least, just, just cut off all the branches and left a stump? You come home, honey, what happened to our tree? I don't know. I thought Bob was just, you know, trimming his branches. Oh, yeah, that looks terrible. Why did he cut the tree on my property? So you go over to him and you say, hey, you know, what just happened there? Why do I not have a tree anymore? I thought I, thought I had one when I left yesterday. And he says something like, you know, I just kind of did it on the spur of the moment because the branches from your tree have always been shading my pumpkin patch. And you know what? I, I'm sorry. Maybe it wasn't the best thing to do. But you know what? It just irritated me, and I just, I just needed to get those, those branches down. And you know, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry if you're mad about it. Is he really sorry? No. Is it something maybe he thought about? Well, maybe or maybe not. But... If he did just do it on the spur of the moment, he's not apologizing for it. He's saying, well, my instinct was better than, than your instinct in this matter. And I'm going to trust my instinct. I'm going to trust my judgment. I'm going to trust my gut. 
We can justify almost anything by appealing to our hearts. This can be taken so far that if we don't that we don't even stir ourselves to do good things because we don't feel like doing it. Let me lay out the logic behind that. Something like if I acted without the true emotion behind it, then I wouldn't be being genuine. So I'm just not going to do it. I'm sorry, but I can't help with the dishes because I just don't feel like it, honey. Maybe later. Maybe later I'll feel like it. But if I did it now, I'd be, you know, grumbling and I wouldn't be happy about it. So it's better for me just not to do that good thing so that I'm genuine and I'm being true to myself. How twisted is that? Friends, you take these two philosophies combined. The elimination of guilt and then almost the idolization of self, of of integrity, so that I can't ever do anything I don't feel like doing, and I must do what I feel like doing. You take these together, and your personal culpability and mine gets really severely minimized. If you get caught, or you hurt someone else, but you were acting from your heart, that makes it less serious. And certainly, you shouldn't feel guilty over your mistakes, Because that means someone else is trying to hold you to their standard of right and wrong, and you're the only one who can determine your own course of action. And it's interesting, even when people do admit they're wrong, have you noticed this a lot? They admit they're wrong, but they don't want any consequences. Okay, fine. All right, fine, I admit, I lied, I I didn't tell the whole truth, let's just move on. Let's just sweep it under the rug, let's just get over it, I, I, I don't want to think about it. I don't want you holding over my head. And so that's why sometimes you see people who will admit they're guilty. And I'm an Ohio State fan, so I'll say this. But a Terrell Pryor might admit and say, oh, I'm sorry, I made some mistakes, the quarterback for Ohio State. But then he goes and appeals the suspension. Then he jumps to the NFL to try and avoid the punishment. I'm sorry. You're not sorry. (laughs) You're sorry you got caught. You don't have true remorse. Someone like that, probably their entire life has been told that guilt is wrong. You have to go with what feels right to you. Then when they do and someone tells them that's wrong, well, why should I feel guilty about that? Why should I listen to your standards of right and wrong? There are several reasons why this philosophy is dangerous for us. The first is that it's so pervasive. It's so widespread. No matter where we turn, we're bombarded with both of those concepts we've been discussing on every side. Our kid's teacher, our favorite TV show, the blog that we read, all are telling us not to feel bad or to make a big deal over our sins. Not only is it really pervasive, but this philosophy can sound very reasonable. You might find a stream of thought like this going through your head. Well, God doesn't want us to think negatively, right? So I just need to sweep my bad habits under the rug and not dwell on them because I need to get up and keep moving, right? A just man rises and he falls, but he rises. So I'm just not going to worry about admitting that I committed sin. Not only is it pervasive, it can sound reasonable, but it affects us and we don't even know it, friends. So often it's not the brazen, obvious temptation that trips us up but it's the subtle little philosophy that get whispered into our ears 24-7, 365 days a year 
That's what soaks into us. That's what gradually changes us. And you look and say, wow, I've gone, I've gone really far off course. How did that happen? I don't remember making a decision. Maybe it wasn't just one crisis moment. Maybe it was a series of decisions fueled by what the world has told us to believe in this, in this instance about your response to wrongdoing. Well, half of the battle is getting a good, steely-eyed view of the enemy and understanding that's what we're combating. That's what we have to fight against. Hopefully at this point we understand that the world has a definite way to approach wrongdoing and it's not God's way. But let's look at these perspectives, these streams of thought about the elimination of guilt and the idolization of positive self-image. Let's look at it from a biblical perspective. So turn to Proverbs 16, if you would. First of all, I'll flip it. What does God first think about our hearts? Because that's really what's at stake. When someone says, well, I just have to do, I just have to be true to myself. I just have to, I have to love myself. I have to accept myself. I have to do whatever I feel like. What they're doing is idolizing their own heart. And they're saying, my heart knows the way. I trust my heart more than I trust your standards, more than I trust God's standards. I trust my heart. You're probably way ahead of me, but Jeremiah 17.9, you may have already thought of this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? But let's look at some of the verses from Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16.2. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but his motives are weighed by the Lord. People think they can find the answers within themselves. Look at also verse 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And then verse 25 really caps it off. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. People think they can find the answers within themselves, but just this one chapter, and I really could have gone to many more, but I focused in because Proverbs 16 has some very good things to say about this topic. We can't trust our hearts. It won't lead us into the right answers. But people think that they can find those answers. And then people become proud that they can find the answers on their own. They become proud that they can have self-sufficiency. Look at verse 5. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. And look at verse 18 as well. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I think it's almost inescapable. If you swallow the world's philosophy and you eliminate guilt and you celebrate self, you are going to be proud. I don't know how you could escape it. Because the culture constantly says, look to yourself. Everything you need is in yourself. You're good enough. You're smart enough. You can do it. Don't let people tell you what to do. Instinctively, getting that much building up artificially, you are going to have an inflated view of yourself. You are going to say, I don't care about other people, whether you think this or whether it's unconscious. I don't care about other people, subconscious, sorry. <laughs> I want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to get people to do what I want them to do 
Otherwise, I'm going to throw a fit. People instead need to rely on God to guide them instead of being self-sufficient. Look at verses 6 and 20. Verse 6, Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. As I've described before, the fear of the Lord is devotion to God. It is a devotion to His way of thinking, first and foremost, above any other way of thinking, including your own, or including the culture's. Look at verse 20 as well. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 talk about don't trust in your own understanding. Don't lean to your own counsel, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord, and he will be the one who directs your paths. Don't try to strike out on your own. Don't trust your heart. Trust God instead. You remember, Jesus said that our words issue from our hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Furthermore, our actions come from our thoughts as well. We usually act a certain way because we've thought about it and we've determined that's the way I want to go. I think that's best. So that's the way we act. So rather than just winking and shrugging when our impulses lead us into sin... It may not be right, but that's just how I feel. Let's remember that Christ saved us because our hearts were filthy. Because we desperately needed his cleansing. Pastor Ken once told us to talk to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. It's a couple of years ago, but I haven't forgotten it. He said we get into trouble when we listen to ourselves because our own heart leads us on a selfish path that's opposed to what God wants. But when we talk to ourselves, we're reminding ourselves, yeah, that might be the way I feel right now, but I know what the consequences of that would be. I know what God's word says is the expectation. The Holy Spirit is tugging me in a separate direction, so you know what? I'm going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to follow the clear teaching of God's word rather than the way I feel at this particular minute. Because, friends, we know that our hearts are changeable, unstable as water. Christian counseling guru Jay Adams had this to say in his book, Ready to Restore. He said, To do what God says when one does not feel like it isn't hypocrisy, it is simple obedience. And he went on to describe how living a life devoted to pleasing God in the fear of the Lord will lead to the right feelings in our hearts. Maybe not all at once, but we have to act right first, and the feelings will follow. We put that backwards too often. We feel something, and that's the way that we act. And our heart, that still, the sin nature is clutching, is kicking and screaming. It doesn't want to be sanctified. It tries to drag us off course. So what does God think about human guilt? We saw what he thinks about this type of celebration of self-image and what he thinks about our heart. But look at Psalm 51. Very, very familiar verse, a chapter. King David was expressing his regret and sorrow for the sin that he committed in stealing another man's wife and then sending that man off into battle so that he would be killed. 
basically murder, and so that he could have Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. But before we really get in too far into Psalm 51, I want to distinguish between those types of guilt. So pay attention, if you will, just for a minute, because I think you'll understand pretty instinctively what I mean as soon as I describe it. We have two types of guilt, objective guilt and subjective guilt. All people are sinners, both by nature and by choice. And since the holy God cannot stand sin, we are guilty and condemned in his presence. Look at verse 14 of Psalm 51. David said, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Save me, Lord, from having to pay the ultimate price for my sin, which is that my blood might be shed because I killed this man Uriah. I was responsible for his death. And God in his mercy did save David, although he took the life of David's infant son. But we are sinners, and we are guilty before God unless, what? Unless someone paid that penalty for us. So Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay that cost for sin, to redeem us from that guilt. Not the subjective feelings of guilt, but the guilt that God said, the verdict for your life is guilty. You are a sinner. You cannot enter my heaven. I will not accept you. But through that righteousness of Christ, that we have through faith in him, we can no longer have to worry about this objective guilt. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are clinging to him this morning, we are now in Christ, so we don't have, we're not guilty before God. But the fact is, that subjective feeling of guilt is still there. It should be there. It is there. It's the feeling of shame, grief, unease, that is a function of our conscience, like I said. Both believers and unbelievers experience guilt. One theological dictionary says that guilt serves as an internal alarm that we have violated our own value system. So people have different value systems. It depends what you hitch that wagon to. Where are you going to derive your values from? But unsafe people, safe people, they all have these subjective guilty feelings. Look at verses 8 and verse 17, Psalm 51. David in verse 8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. I think this, the, the implication is, I don't hear joy and gladness right now. My guilt is so overwhelming to me that I cannot be happy. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Again, the implication is, Lord, I have a broken and contrite heart. Accept me. Forgive me. He genuinely regretted his sin not only against Uriah, but look at verses 3 and 4. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David understood, I didn't just sin against Uriah. I sinned against the holy God of heaven who can't stand sin. And it makes me feel guilty. It makes me feel unclean. Another biblical scholar divided this subjective type of guilt into two further categories that I think are very helpful to keep in mind. 
And he got this from 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, talking about when Paul said there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and there's a worldly sorrow. We can hold on to destructive, self-condemning guilt. That's what this scholar's words were. Destructive, self-condemning guilt that leads to anxiety. We talked about this a little bit earlier. It's that long-term guilty feelings. I, I just, I can't get over this. And I would agree that the culture is right to reject that hopeless self-blame. But not only is there a destructive, self-condemning subjective guilt, but we also have a remorseful, constructive sorrow that leads to change. Not anxiety, but change. And the first step in this is forgiveness from God. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about we, us, Christians, who have sinned and need to come before God and admit our guilt. Admit, Lord, I feel terrible about this, so I know I've sinned. Or maybe we've sinned against others. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says, Therefore, if you are offering your guilt at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, Go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your guilt. We are supposed to apologize to those that we've hurt. We are supposed to make things right when guilt tells us that we're in the wrong. Now friends, like so many other things in our Christian life, we have to walk a balance when it comes to guilt. Or we run the, the risk of doing great harm to ourselves or to those around us. If we cling to our past sins in a defeatist way, then that will prevent us from moving forward in grace. But attempts to ignore those guilty twinges can also be devastating to us. One Christian counselor I read, he thinks that people do more self-harm by denying this type of guilt and evading it and trying to minimize it, those guilty feelings. He thinks they do more harm to themselves than in any other way. The key, of course, is to line up your value system with Scripture. That way, when your conscience rings that alarm bell and you feel guilty, if your value system is in line with God's Word, then you'll know, okay, that is a warning that God is giving me. Remember, Paul said, don't violate your conscience. Even if your conscience isn't completely right, you still need to abide by your conscience. The best thing to do, of course, is to make your conscience fit God's word. Say, why do I do what I do? Why do I feel guilty about this? Is it something I should feel guilty about? Is it something that I need to give up and move past because the Lord says that's not an issue? Why do I feel guilty? When do I feel guilty? We need to be more sensitive to sin in our lives. We need to move closer to Christ-likeness. When I was in college, um, one of the projects I had to do was to study through, I may have mentioned this before, to study through the entire book of Proverbs and to look at every reference to the fool or to the simple one or to the scorner. They're different categories, but they're all basically people who have no use for God's way of doing things. The number one characteristic of a fool, over and over again, more than anything else, yes, 
they're angry, yes, they're lazy, but the number one characteristic of a fool is that he does not accept correction. He will not admit he's wrong. He will not let you tell him that he's wrong. Now, I don't know if the culture thousands of years ago was already trying to eliminate guilt and celebrate self-image like it is today. Probably was to some degree. But friends, we're in a war zone for your heart, for your thinking. 1 Timothy 4.7 says to train yourself to be godly. And that word train came from the athletes of that day. Remember, they had the Olympics back then too. And these athletes, just like athletes today, would train and they would sweat blood and tears to get to that elite level. They would sacrifice anything they had to to get to that point where they could wear the wreath, where they could be celebrated as the best at that particular event that they specialized in. It implies a lot of hard work. And we have to ask ourselves this morning, do I want to work at godliness? Or do I want to be a fool? Do I want to understand what God's word says? Do I want to accept what God's word says about my sin? Or do I want to accept what the culture says about sin? Remember, confess means literally to say the same thing. When we confess our sins, friends, we mean that we, or should mean, that we're saying the same thing about our sins as God does. So we can't eliminate guilt. We can't excuse our rotten behavior as, well, it was just something I did on the spur of the moment. I just felt like doing it that way. We can't, we can't use those excuses because God's word doesn't let us use those excuses. We have to focus our minds. We might have to clean out some gunk out of our hearts. But let's, this morning and from now on, understand the culture has a way to, for you to respond to your wrongdoing. And God has a way for you to respond to your wrongdoing. Let's choose God's path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us this week as we move forward. Lord, give us steely determination. Um, give us clear vision to see the traps, the pitfalls ahead of us, both the subtle ones and the obvious ones. And Lord, give us the strength that we need to always put you first, to always be devoted to your way of thinking, your way of living. Lord, I need this as much as anyone in this room, and I ask that you would help me and everyone here that we would be people of honor, people of the book, people who live our lives by grace and not by our own hearts. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen.